This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I had a weird thought when I was like, I'm recording with Sean today. And then for some reason I said, Seanald? Like Donald? And then I just thought of the Seanald, like the Donald. So you know the Seanald. Okay. I don't do a good Trump impression, unfortunately. Okay. Oh, well. That's good, probably. Uh, That's for the best. Hello, Sean. Hey, Derek. How's it going? Long time no speak. It's going good. How about yourself? Uh, pretty good. So since we last spoke, I became an Elixir developer. I don't know if you're aware of this. Weren't you an Elixir developer last time? Or you were an in-denial Elixir developer last time? I was time, interested. I, I was interested in Elixir. No, you were on a project. No, now I'm on a project. Was, were we on a, was I on a project? Yeah, and you, and, you were, and you were feeling bad because you felt like you were having to look up too many things, and I was saying that you know as much Elixir as every other Elixir developer at the company. <laughs> it's true. So, like, maybe a couple weeks ago, the episode where Lila and I actually kind of dove into Elixir in Phoenix, I was talking about how, like, I hadn't really found, I'd found a couple small things that I liked better about Rails or hadn't really found any major problems. I don't know if it's today that I'm just working on a harder problem, but so far today, there's a couple things now where I'm like, oh, okay. This is bothering me. Like, what were some of the things that came up? The error messages just, they're not, oh, cutting, yeah. they're not cutting it for me. Uh, like today, Ian and I were pairing on something and we got an error that was argument error, argument error. <laughs> Helpful. Okay, great. I think that came from Erlang somewhere, which doesn't help very much. So the error messages could use some work, I think, to help people out. So is that is that still a big issue? Because I, remem- I, I remember... Like back in last time I looked at it was something like zero point six, and that was one of the biggest issues was that there were basically never any error messages, and it'd always just be an issue with pattern matching expected Adam okay and got you know Adam error or something like that. I know that was something that they were working on improving, but the VM didn't really have any tools to support it. So did they ever like did they ever get around that, or is that still basically the situation? I'd say I get I get some error. I don't know if like that was a specific response to this issue, but I get some errors that are definitely helpful, and I get a lot of errors that are I've learned to decode, right? Oh, this means I did this, or whatever the case may be, and I can't remember any of them off the top of my head. <laughs> um, but they're not, you know, it's not really a showstopper, but it's super, it's, it's kind of a letdown. Um, yeah. I wish they were better. And there's been some that I've gotten, like clearly somebody wrote an error message into something that wasn't 100% correct, but I wasn't able, like, I don't know enough to know about all the cases to, like, submit a PR myself to say this would be a lot more helpful if it said this because I might also be leaving out some other case that the original message was trying to cover, that kind of thing. Like, I'm in a situation where, you know, when I was talking to Lila about it, like, my contributions so far have been mostly, like, documentation and error messages, which is kind of like walking the walk of how we talk about how to get involved in open source, right? Like, start doing some documentation pull requests. But sometimes you just don't know enough to submit a documentation pull request. But maybe I should be opening issues a little more. Issues are always good. Yeah. You could also just submit the change. And if it's wrong, then they close it. That's true. Or ask you to fix it. That's true. That's true. I should get on that. Other things that are starting to bother me. 
there's atoms and strings again. We're doing this again. Yeah. So like Ruby, you know, we've talked on this show before about I wish that I wish that symbols, which in Elixir are called atoms, uh, but they're the same concept. I wish that symbols were just syntactic sugar for like a frozen string. And in Elixir, I just wish they didn't exist. <laughs> or they were or they were syntactic sugar for a string that you didn't need to quote on both ends or something like that. Right. Um, so that just came up a couple times like in the API that we're working with. It's like, oh, this returns a string, but in this case, it's actually a lot more handy if we don't have to hash rocket everything and we can just use we can just use atoms as the keys. Um, so it's got that familiar thing where you're like, oh, this is a map and uh, I can't use this syntax. I have to use this other syntax because the keys are of this type. So that problem's still there because it's very Ruby inspired probably. Yeah. And I don't know anything about Erlang and how much of this comes from Erlang underlying it or anything like that. And then the last thing that I often struggle with is the date time stuff that you have to do. So uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong and people who are listening are going to be like, this is so easy. But uh, like a lot of times, especially in tests, you, I find myself wanting to use things like a day ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's a library for that called Good Times, which is a fantastically named library. So kudos to whoever wrote that. And you can say like Good Times dot a day ago or whatever, or a day from now, or I forget exactly the exact syntax. And that takes in as its input a um, Erlang timestamp or date stamp or whatever the case may be, which is a pair of tuples which have like year, month, day as the first pair and hour, minute, second as the second pair, which okay. is a little weird looking when you first look at it. It's a tuple of tuples, I think, is the way it looks. Right, a tuple of a date and a time, it sounds right. like. yeah. It looks a little weird when you first do it, but you're actually it's actually like, actually, that's not a terrible way to construct an exact timestamp. You know, other than like a struct of some kind, <laughs> slash object, slash record, depending on, on what language you're working in. Right, it's not bad. But then basically when you want to go from that to like good time and then back to like something that you're going to persist back to Ecto, you've got to cast it for Ecto's date times. There's a lot of like what what format is this currently in? What format do I need it in? And then, the, you know, what are the intermediate steps that I'm going to need to be in if I want to like use, you know, good times to do relative dates, use timex to parse dates or something like that, which timex is another date time library. And I was talking a little bit about this at lunch with people here, and they were mentioning that, like, they kind of laughed, and they were like, you mean exactly like it is in Ruby? And I was like, I guess. Like, Active Support does a decent job of kind of, like, papering over some of the weirdness with Ruby date, dates and times. Well, it also stops being that big of an issue in OO languages because you don't care about what it actually is. You just care about what methods you can call on it, and the interfaces are basically the same. Yeah, that's true. But there are like, you know, there are those weird, they have date and they have time and date time. One, yeah. of, those is, one of those is added by Rails, right? Date time? Date time is added by Rails. Right. And you should basically always be using time. <laughs> Not date time? Not date time, no. Okay. So why do we add date time? Uh, date time is important if you're dealing with certain types of dates that involve calendar transitions. If you care about the specifics of dates that occurred around the time that we switched over to the Gregorian calendar, basically time stores itself as a uh, UTC offset, mm-hmm. uh, whereas date time stores itself as year, month, day, hour, minute, second, and does calendar logic, which basically means it's way slower, but is more correct in cases where time didn't advance linearly, basically, <laughs> or re- the, the calendar didn't advance linearly, which happened like a few millennium, millennia ago or centuries ago. 
however long it was. Something, something. Yeah. And then gravitational waves get involved somehow. I'm not entirely sure. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, those are the couple things that are starting to like, and a couple times today got bit by things where I was like, you know what would have saved me here? Types. Types would have saved me here. Yeah. Yeah. As as you were saying, like, what do I have? What do I want? What are are the trends? I'm just like, boy, and that really sucks in dynamically typed languages. (laughs) And there's a couple other, like, things that are probably just problems with my editor tooling currently, but, like... Uh, I'm working on this application. Everything's namespace, which is great. We don't have namespaces in Ruby, so fantastic. But I often want to alias things, so I don't have to use the full, like I don't have to use like namespace dot account, namespace dot user, namespace dot whatever. I can just, in the same file, if I'm going to be repeatedly referring to that namespace dot account, I can just say account, right? So that has, in Elixir, you can do alias, you know, namespace dot account, and that'll just let you call it account uh, throughout the rest of that module. And it's really kind of annoying to do that, like to realize you want to do that, like when you're down on line 30 and you're like, oh, all that stuff goes up the top. So you do account and then you're like, I'm going to remember before I compile this to go back and add alias account to the top. Like that's the kind of thing, like I know if I were using an IDE, it would probably like when I write the file, it would just be like, it looks like you wanted to alias this and I'm just going to go ahead and do that for you because it's like the only account in your system. It's in this namespace. You probably wanted to do that. And maybe I could probably, maybe I could do that with Vim, but there doesn't yeah. appear to be fantastic Vim Elixir tooling. From what I can see, a lot of people that are using Elixir are using Emacs. Hmm. And I don't know if that's actually true, but just from the videos I've watched, a lot of people are using Emacs. I don't know if their tooling's doing that for them, but... At least a lot of the people making videos. Right. I still, like, if I were going to start a new project today and I had to be productive immediately, I'd still probably use Elixir in Phoenix right now because it still has my attention, and I still think in the areas where it's different, I prefer it um, so far. So anyway, that's where I am. I didn't want to be, you know, the last time that Lila and I recorded, it was all sunshine and, and roses for the most part. And it still is. Like, I still really enjoy it, but it's definitely some places where I'm like, oh, this is a carryover. And I'm, fr- I'm familiar with this problem. So, you know, it's not the be-all, end-all. But See, like my theory with programming languages is that developers don't have languages that they like. They have languages that they dislike the least. <laughs> and so if you still like a language or framework, it just means that you don't know it well enough yet. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. That kind of like, after that last episode that Lila and I did about Elixir, Brandon Heikert, Hickert? I don't know. Sorry, Brandon, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. But he tweeted at me to ask, like, at the end of the episode, I, I basically said that I didn't know if I was just, like, tired of doing Rails or if it was, like, that this is actually better than Rails and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and his point was, like, he wondered if it was partly, like, it's the consulting, doing Rails consulting and seeing similar problems again and again and again. And if you are using the same tool again and again and again, the problems you're solving are problems related to the tool. So you become a lot more attuned to the things that bother you about that tool. Whereas if you're continually working on the same product again and over and over, the tool is a means to improve the product. You do what you're able to do with the tool to improve the product. Yeah. And you live with its shortcomings, but you know them, right? And there's some truth to that. And I think there's also some truth to the, like, tools can make certain problems drastically more common, things like that. Yeah, well, and that's part of why I think the consulting background, despite, like, there are members of the of the core team who don't like having consultants around, basically, um, <laughs> because they think that when you come from a consulting background, you see everything as a fire, everything as, as a problem. But I think on the flip side, right, is that, yeah, I agree, tools can make certain problems more common. And so coming and working on that tool from that background gives a good, a good, I guess, map of things that could be improved and problems that could be made. Right. Like a good example is like if a feature gets added to Rails that I don't like, 
if I'm on a product team, I just say, I wish they didn't do that. that. I wish they didn't spend their time on that. I wish they spent their time on this other thing instead, but I'm just not going to use that. But as a consultant, I immediately think, oh God, somebody's going to use that and I'm going to be asked to clean it up. Right? Like, <laughs> right. Or on the other side, and I'm going to be asked to fix the bugs. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> Basically, we can all agree that action cable can just go away. <laughs> I mean, maybe it can't go. It, it doesn't have to go away. It can just be a gem that people can install. Right. Go go away from Rails proper. I mean. Right. But anyway, there's other things too, like things that come up, and I'm just like, oh, I don't want people using that. And if I write a product team where there was like six or seven people or whatever, I could we could all just get together and be like, what do you think? What do you all think about this feature? Maybe we'll try it out in this isolated thing. If we're if we're kind of interested, try it out in this isolated part of the code base. If it works, great. Maybe we can bring it to other places. If it doesn't. Or if we all agree on the outset, like it's not something we're interested in using, we just won't use it, and big deal, problem solved, it's over. Um, but when you deal with a lot of other people's code, you're kind of forced to confront a lot of those issues and see how they get used. Yeah, like a good example for me was variants from Rails. Right. So those are like you can serve an entirely different response based on the user agent of the person that requested it. Right. So you can say, it looks like this person's on an iPhone. Send them this slimmed down markup. Um, it looks like this person's on a desktop, send them this full experience, right? And, and you could do that before. This just gives you, because like we don't do user agent parsing for you. We just give you a nice API for you to do whatever parsing you want on the request and then call that a variant. It has some built-in stuff for rent, like when you call render. And right. if, you, if you have variant, if you have the request variant set, it'll look for the template with that variant. Right. My, my, my point more just being, but it's not like we're trying to specifically encourage serving different markup for mobile, even though that is how everybody uses it. And that's what it was basically added for. Like Rails doesn't actually do that for you or specifically say, right. do it that way. Right. And so like for a long time, that came in in 4.1, I think. And for a long time, I never saw it. Like I remember being like, oh, this is like, can't we, can we do responsive design instead and try and like be judicious about what we're doing here and for a long time i never saw it so i was like actually i guess nobody's using this and then i it came along and i was it was on a project where i was on where there was i was like doing some performance work and a lot of the performance issues were springing from views and so i would fix them in one view and then be like oh now i've got to switch over to the uh mobile view which has the same or maybe a totally different set of problems and solve them there so it just like created a bunch more work and i feel like if you knew what you were getting into and you like if you knew what variants were going to do for you and the problems that they might cause from the outset, you would be able to like use that feature in a way that didn't cause that problem. But it was only a matter of time before we worked with a team where that had that problem because you might not right. notice. You might not know, until you until you start using it and see where the problem. Like, oh yeah, I can see how that would be a problem. Like you don't know necessarily the areas to avoid it. But at, at the same time, one of the things I've been thinking about a good bit uh, lately actually is that responsive design maybe isn't necessarily always the best option. User agent sniffing to determine what markup to send is kind of awful, and I wish there were, uh, I think there probably is nowadays a standard way of, in the headers, saying, like, and I am a mobile device of who cares what kind, like, I'm mobile, send me mobile. Um, but simply because, especially if you are somewhere with uh, poor connection, low bandwidth, or if you have bandwidth limits, right, you're sending way more CSS and potentially way more markup than you need to if you're using responsive design. Because they're going to get all of the styles for mobile as well as all of the styles for desktop. And potentially if some of the markup is being hidden by, by CSS, also markup that they're not even seeing. Right. But I, think, but I think it's possible to have to design a holistic solution that's like one website, one batch of CSS, one batch of JavaScript, and it's still performant. Like I don't think that that's necessarily impossible. 
I think I'm it's not necessarily hard. talking about performance. I'm literally just talking about number of bytes sent over the wire. Right. Well, that's part of performance, right? Well, so sure, I guess you yeah. could. I mean, if you're if you're talking like super low bandwidth, which you potentially could be talking about, then that yeah, that is a concern certainly. It's more just one of the things that we tend to forget about, and as data caps get more and more restrictive, but especially it's when you get out of the United States, when when you have a market that's worldwide, that becomes much bigger of an, a much bigger issue. Depends and you on, can't rely on yeah. everybody to have four G. Guess it depends on where in the world, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you get into third world countries like the UK, <laughs> do they have that slow internet speeds there? Or are you just are you just digging on Sam Fibbin? <laughs> All of the above. Okay. Hi, Sam. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that's my that's where I am on Elixir, and then a little brief tour of the conversation I had with Brandon. So I thought it was a and it was constricted to a tweet or five tweets or something like that. So you know we didn't get too much context, but I think that captures the spirit of it. What have you been doing the last few weeks? Uh, well, I was in San Francisco last week to speak at the Bay Area Rust meetup, and then talk at a couple of different companies about Rust and Diesel. Wow, um, that's it pretty was cool. impressive. I I got to, I was sitting uh, I basically worked out of the Mozilla office in between everything and like people would come up to me and be like hey aren't you the diesel guy and nobody asked me about rails all week and it was awesome <laughs> so that was cool um because as you as you know we recently shipped 0.5 which had SQLite support mm-hmm. which was a very large undertaking and I've sort of been taking a little bit of a of a break since that release I do need to spit out a, a really minor release soon but um. The next big thing is going to be associations, which are hard. I'm starting to realize that the API that I think I want doesn't actually make a lot of sense in a statically typed language. What is the API for us? Well, first of all, hang on. How's the SQLite thing going? Like, how is are people using it? Has it been a problem? Yeah, people are using it for sure. And it was funny, as we approached the 0.5 release, I'm, I'm sure this is just a random coincidence, or maybe it had to do with adoption, um, but... All of a sudden, I started getting way, way, way more people asking me on IRC and Twitter and in our Gitter room, like, hey, can I use this with SQLite? From two weeks before we shipped 0.5 until we shipped 0.5, just for whatever reason, the number of questions I was getting about SQLite skyrocketed. Uh, but yeah, so people are definitely using it. It's not been too much of a, of a problem. There's a, a handful of features that I still need to add support for. Like the, there are features that SQLite doesn't support because uh, because I will never be able to support it. Like all of our APIs that rely on the using the returning keyword, SQLite has no returning keyword, so we just can't. So what what would the returning like what would the returning keyword do? Um, so basically, the way the way it works is if you're doing an insert or an update, right? So for things like timestamps, for example, we um, want you to use the database to update your timestamps and not do that in Rust. Mm-hmm. So the only way to get the value of like the new value of updated at is to query the database and any other potential changes that might happen if you do partial updates. So when you're going to update something, you create this update command by doing update some set of records or single record dot set, whatever changes you want. And then on that, you can call either execute, get result, or get results. Execute will just do it and will return the number of rows that were that were modified. Mm-hmm. Get result assumes that you are updating exactly one record and will give you back a single record and treats anything that returns a non-zero number of records as an error case. And then get results assumes that you updated more than one thing and gives you back a vector of of what you updated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similar to everything else with Diesel, it's built around queries, not models. So uh, when I say it, you get back a record, uh, that can be basically any struct that matches the shape of the query. Anyway, so uh, and then the same happens for it. The same API exists for insert and all the same stuff there. Uh, and basically none of that works on SQLite. <laughs> okay. So... You can only call execute on SQLite. 
All right. Well, that seems okay. Yeah. Um, there, and then there's other things like uh, we support batch inserts. You just pass an array of things, and then we do a batch insert. I may eventually figure out some fancy way to do this in multiple queries, but um, SQLite does not support the default keyword. Like, standalone default still exists sometimes when you're saying like insert into table default values but in uh other backends you can use the word just the word default in place of a value and that says give me the you know use the default value for this column in this one case which is important if you're doing batch if you're inserting more than one thing because if you want to insert two records and one of them you want the default value and the other one you have a specific value uh, right, there's no way to do that in a single query. In you SQL need the line. same number of you need the same. The tuples have to have the same number of columns in them. Exactly. Right. Um, so you need to so, pad them with defaults where you need where you need the default. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, the way you do it in SQLite is you just you know you do insert into table, list all the column names, values, and then all the values, and basically just leave off the the things that you want to use the default value for in SQLite. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we just don't. So batch inserts just don't compile on SQLite. I mean, the the, the upside to all this is. I've got it all set up, so it's not like you get an error. All this will just fail to compile mm-hmm. if you try and do it with SQLite. So there's stuff like that that I'll never be able to support, uh, or stuff like returning I'll never be able to support. Batch inserts I might change in the future to do more than one query under the hood. Mm-hmm. And then there's stuff that I just haven't gotten around to supporting yet, like our infer, our infer schema macro, um, which is the thing that goes and, and asks the database for what tables exist and what types all of the columns are, and then calls our table macro for you automatically. Um, that doesn't support SQLite yet, just because I haven't had a chance to go in and write that code for SQLite, because uh, mm-hmm. it has it like none zero of that code can be reused. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then I think the other thing that's missing is I uh, haven't added support for date and time types yet to SQLite. Okay. <laughs> I also didn't add support for the numeric data type. Um, <laughs> and when I went to go do that, I, I found that the numeric data type shows no observable difference from a float in SQLite. Okay, well then, easy I'm implementation. Just not add it. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying? So you said that the your your earlier plan for associations, you were now thinking you're not going to pursue, or you don't think it's a good fit. I'm still just I, I'm not sure if it if it composes arbitrarily. I uh, like I'm still just thinking through all the use cases. But basically, I wanted something semi similar to includes from Active Record. Although, actually, I guess it's closer to preload in Ecto where you can pass it a specific query instead of a, the name of a table. Yeah, so preload in Ecto, I think you first you get the record back, and then you say preload these other associations off of it. You can also do it as part of the query builder where you do... Um, okay. you, you can call preload with an atom, and then it works just like active record, or you can also say, like, from C in... Uh, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We can link to that in the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. But I, I, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, and so I was thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at maybe doing something similar to that, but uh, the main thing that's different is the way I want our associations to work is uh, you don't have like a posts method on your user uh, mm-hmm. that, that gets the posts if they haven't already been loaded. What I want it to be is if you get a user and all of their posts, you get back a tuple of a user and all of their posts. Right, we talked about this a long time ago, right. Yeah, and so if you look at how that composes, right, uh, I like to add comments as the third as the third case because a comment in in theory belongs to both a post and a user. Mm-hmm. So if you want a user and all of their posts and all of the comments that that you that that user has written, you get back a tuple of user and a tuple of vector vec post and vec comment. Mm, so you would get back the 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 comments you get back would be associated to the posts already. Is that what you're saying? No, the comments would be associated to the user. Okay. 
but you get a tuple back. Okay, got you. I got it. Yep. Uh, and then if you a want... Tuple of, a, a tuple of vectors, you said. Okay. Yeah, a user and then a vector of all of the posts and then a vector of all of the comments. And the, com- and the comments are associated with the user, in this case, not with the post. Right? And then on the flip side, if you want a user and all of their posts and all of the comments written on those posts, the return type would be a tuple of user and a vector of a tuple of a of post and vec comment, right? So mm-hmm. tuple of, uh, you, you know, you have a tuple of a post and all the comments on that post, and then you have a, a tuple of a user and all of those. And if, if, I'm just, if I just start to write out, like, and then if you, you know, and then you compose that arbitrarily, so you can go five or six levels deep or eight associations wide, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of things that I've started to realize. Number one was that I was originally wanting to do it this way because I want to enforce that you join whenever you're eager loading associations. And after thinking about it for more than two minutes, I realized that if you're ever going to eager load more than one association, it is never a good idea to join it because the data duplication will almost certainly be more expensive than the round trip time. Mm-hmm. And then as I started to l- like just write out the API that I was thinking I wanted there, I started to realize that just the type, the return type is utter nonsense. I'm not sure how I get it to, ar- to arbitrarily compose. Right, yeah. It's one of these things. I need to. I, I really need to just write out all of the cases I do want to support, all the cases I don't want to support. If there are any that I know for a fact I don't want to support, and then just write some code that is here's what I would have to write if I were going to manually do this and look for the patterns there. Right. And maybe once I have three or four different cases written out, I'll see the commonalities and start to see what the API should be based on that. But it's tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, a lot of times when I get into these situations, I like to absorb what other what other languages and frameworks are doing. And all of the languages and frameworks that have a nice API for eager loading associations are in dynamically typed languages. Yep. So like the Ecto, when we talked about Ecto earlier, one of the things that we talked about before for a goal for Diesel was to make it impo- impossible to do N plus one queries, right? Yeah. So in Ecto, you also can similarly not do N plus one queries, but you still have a method on your object called posts. Right. Or and on your struct called post, and it just gives you a not loaded error or whatever. Yeah. And you want to specifically avoid having something like that, right? Yeah. Well, we, why would you want to avoid that? Um, basically because the posts have to live somewhere, mm-hmm. right? So um, basically what this ends up meaning is if you have a user and you, want to, and you want to sometimes have it with posts, you end up having a field on that struct called posts, which would be some sort of an option or a result, right? Mm-hmm. And... That doesn't scale up. You end up having to have something explicitly there for every single association that you may ever want to load. That is associated to a user. Right. Or any model. Sure. For any given model, any one of their associations has to have an option, basically, that this thing right. might be there or might not be there. Right. Basically, one of the things that leads to God objects and Rails would end up being forced to be explicit. The associations leading to God objects? Is that what you're talking about? Right. You remember, you remember way back on T1D right. when uh, when Code Climate was complaining that we had too many right. So then we uh, flipped lines. all the associations around, which was perfect. Right, I liked but, that. But, and we were like, yeah, this is too many associations. We really shouldn't have user care about this many different things because we're right. not actually going through user most of the time. Yeah. So I don't understand why that's a problem for the framework to solve. Like that's a problem we solved ourselves by just being like, um, we can get this through the post rather than getting it through the user. Right. 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 My, and my point, well, and that's my point is that if we get to the same solution, which is that this shouldn't necessarily live on the user. It should be a property of the post or a property of the query. Okay. I'm still not following. <laughs> I still don't understand why like post couldn't have user as a method on it that tells you 
what the user well, is. So same thing, right? Do you really want to have option user on, on your post struct? Why not? If it's well, an optional a, that, part a, of it. That ends up leading to duplication, unless you want to stick it behind a pointer and heap allocate things. It's just like it, uh, data associated to uh, with a model isn't part of that model. It is a separate thing. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Like the user ID is part of that model. Sure. And that's an indicator of where to go to get the or how to get the actual other data, I right. guess. And, and, and my goal is to make it easy to go get that other data if you need it, mm -hmm. but not to make them the same thing. Right. Like uh, even even if it's even if I make it easy for you to go get the user associated with a post, the user and the post are still two separate things, and I want them to continue to be separate things that you pass around separately and have separate ownership. Yeah, that makes that does make sense. Like, just thinking back to Rails and being like, a lot of times when you're dealing with an association through like dot syntax, right? You're like user dot post dot something. Like you have this habit of like when you do user.posts, you're like, okay, now I have all now I'm dealing with a post. But you're not. You're dealing with this association that represents user to post, which is really more closely related to user, but not really. But it's definitely not a post. But sometimes you can call some of the methods on it. Uh, and it's it's it gets in this weird area, I feel like. Yeah. Well it just leads to muddy logic. Yeah, definitely. So I can I can I can see that. And it's also just thinking about ergonomics, right? as well. You're never going to end up writing logic that's like, and if I loaded the posts, do this, and if I didn't load the posts, do this other thing. You could, I guess. You could, and if you and it's not but and I'm not necessarily preventing you from writing that if you want if you want to write that, but mm -hmm. the majority of the time you're either going to you either are writing code that assumes it's not there or assumes that it is there. Right. I'm thinking specifically of like a partial, right? Where you're rendering a user's profile. And maybe in some context where you have like you could you could potentially reuse the same partial that would be like Maybe when you hover over a user, it would give you their dynamic, basic profile information. And then when you click on it, you get to see like, oh, and here are all the posts they wrote or whatever. And that could actually be the same partial, just saying like, if you have posts loaded, then do this other thing. Yeah. I'd be kind of wasteful. Like you could also just have two partials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there are definitely some edge cases where it makes sense. But again, right, like I'm not necessarily preventing you from writing that code. Right. But for the majority, the majority case, right? You're you're never checking to see if you if you got back a not loaded error in Ecto. Nor would you if I wrote uh, associations in Diesel that way. Like you would likely end up unwrapping that option mm -hmm. wherever you actually assumed that was there. And it's like if you're always assuming that it's there or not there, I'd rather not shoehorn it into an API where the result is if you ever make a mistake, you get a runtime error, and this isn't ever checked at compile time. Right. Having thought about the scenario I just threw out, it's probably that's crazy. Don't anybody ever do that. Um, I think I just got vaguely excited by the idea of being able to do that, where like in Rails you would just be like uh, user dot posts, and then it'd be like I loaded them all for you. Uh, <laughs> you you can ask in Rails if if posts, if a relation is. Oh, been you loaded. can. How do you do that? Dot, dot loaded, loaded? Mark. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it must use that internally. Yeah. For things, and then just it's, pu it's public it. API. Yeah, makes sense to make it public as well. Okay. Yeah. The only the only method that actually loads is two A, and that gets called by various Everything. things automatically. Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, and then anything that that does anything enumerable related delegates to it, mm -hmm. and of course, inspect out of necessity needs to load it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Cool. So you, the idea is you're just going to have to write some code manually and see what patterns emerge at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it's also just. I need to distance myself a little. I think I'm I'm being a little bit too influenced also by prior art, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming like I need this and this and this, and then I just need to spend a lot of time looking 
at a bunch of applications in a bunch of languages using a bunch of frameworks and see what people actually do or don't commonly do. See what people ask for too, right? Like, yeah. If it's good enough for people to use currently, just see what they start asking you for and see if you can encourage like a different approach to solving those problems and see if like, like we were talking, I was talking with Ben at lunch today about, I think he was talking about Elm where he talked, uh, was maybe watched a talk with the person who created Elm. I'm not sure. Anyway, if it's a talk, we'll find it. We'll link to it in the show notes. But he was mentioning that this person had said, when you introduce things into, well, in this case, a language, but also a library shapes how that language or library is used in perpetuity, right? right? If you introduce a feature from the very beginning, then that is part of its identity is that it has, you know, part of Rails is part of active records identity is the way it does associations. You can't change the way it does associations without changing how everybody has to think about active record. Whereas if you wait and you put associations much later, right, in these automatic associations, associations probably, even if it was implemented the exact same way, probably end up getting used a lot differently because people have already established these other patterns about how to like do association-like things that don't involve having as many comments or whatever. Right. And that maybe that's not a great example, but like the idea of thinking about when you want to, like, is this absolutely core to it or is it something I want it to be able to do eventually and I want to see how it shakes out and how the community solves this problem without these abstractions right? Uh, in place. Well, I, when I say association support also, the only case that I'm really referring to is eager loading right. specifically because mm-hmm. we already have a belonging to method uh, and you can put belongs to above a class and then you are above a struct. So you can do like post dot belong or colon colon belonging to and then pass that a user struct. And that all works. Mm-hmm. That that's like the easy case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the, and that's the other thing, right? It's also like, how often do you actually end up eager loading a lot of a, a lot? Like one of the big questions I'm, I'm starting to wonder when I'm, you know I talk about like, well, and this needs to nest arbitrarily. Does it? Does it? Right. Like, how often are you actually eager loading more than one level down? It definitely. I I, I would say it comes up. <laughs> it, it comes up, but does it come up often enough to really care? If I can eager load in some other way, then probably not. Well, I mean, you can always eager load in some other way. Sure, that's true. If it's simple enough for me to eager load in some other way, like in Ecto, for example, I don't know the syntax for preloading a nested association. Like, and when I have to do it, it's like, wait, I got that wrong. I got that. It's like complicated. It's not the simplest structure that you have to pass to this preload method. This is the other this is kind of the other reason that I want to keep associations separate from the models is because like if you if if you ever want to do something we don't support it's never and then how do I put this into the container that diesel uses otherwise it's just you get what you want and then you pass tuples around right or whatever structure you want because I actually don't care right and so maybe what I was thinking is like maybe it's actually kind of a feature that that's a pain in the ass to do. <laughs> it's like, maybe, you know, you want to do that as little as possible, but maybe not. I don't know. Is it necessarily bad to nest arbitrarily deep? Probably because you have a lot of coupling, right? But I think it needs to compose arbitrarily wide. Right, sure. So you could load many associations. Right, as long as, long as it's all associated to the same parent. Right, but then going from, I don't know, post to user to account to, prefer- to preferences or something like that. Yeah. And again, right, and all of this, is, and, and, and this is specifically in the case where you have more than one parent record. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so that's one of those, like, do I, do I need that? Uh, things that I, I, I'm pretty sure I do like are things like has many through. Not necessarily ever explicitly stating has many through, but more just being able to compose for joins. To compose for joins. So you Arbitrarily mean, deep. like, basically the, the magic of a has many through in Rails is that 
there's no magic really it's just it's like a shortcut for writing multiple joins to get to what you want right um and then i mean there is some magic in terms of for eager loading basically right but, mm-hmm. um <laughs> ig- ignoring ignoring that case right like just being able to say give me all of the comments written on any post written by this user right which you should be able to write nicely when you've already told me here's how you get from user to post and you've told me here's how to get from post to comments Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, definitely don't want it to be the way it is in Rails, where you just say, hey, go get the comments, because that introduces ambiguity. I do want you to have to be explicit. I want you to get the comments through the posts. Okay. But. You want it to be easy. Yeah, That's something you're going to gonna have to do, you're going to want to do often. For, you know, the example we gave earlier of, like, the user profile page. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. Anyway, so there's a lot of unanswered questions, and it'll probably be a good bit of time um, before 0.6 comes out. How's your web framework? good uh <laughs> when there's a web framework i'll be there <laughs> well so have you seen our new getting started tutorial for diesel yeah the like there's a new one or the, the one, one on the website one on the website yes i've seen that yes yeah so my uh tutorial has you build a cli blog app right yeah because <laughs> uh, i tried to use a framework called nickel uh for the tutorial originally and nickel pissed me off so much that i couldn't finish the framework uh, i couldn't finish the tutorial <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah and, pl- and plus for a tutorial you don't want to uh, introduce too many external like eh, there's also this hand wavy nickel thing don't worry just copy and paste this code it'll be okay right so to do it um it's <laughs> cli block engine i like that you could have done a diary but I mean, cli that's, blog that's effectively what, yeah, it is. what it is yeah <laughs> um i guess i guess i never write anything no i do write a show but yeah i guess i sort of assume that uh <laughs> that you're just accessing the same database as a website and okay. this website apparently doesn't have crud capabilities <laughs> i don't know it's a, it was a it was a it was a bullshit example but it was easy and i got to poke fun at the fact that it was bullshit in the in the tutorial bit and it riffs off of the uh build a blog in 15 minutes or whatever it was right yep okay cool uh we should probably wrap up because i gotta okay. get back to work do you have anything else you wanted to say before we finish up uh oh hey we're both going to be at railsconf yes we are both going to be at railsconf you will be speaking about rails 5 yep and the lesser publicized features of it right right all right so i'm excited about that and i along with richard schneeman and caleb thompson are going to be giving a workshop on upgrading to rails 5 uh the idea being i believe that there's going to be like a an app we'll go through and then if there's time maybe you can start upgrading your own app and we'll be there for the length of the workshop to answer questions and if if i've done my job properly it should be a very easy <laughs> workshop well yeah we'll see <laughs> i haven't run into too many active record issues and it, it all comes from i actually found that uh we can do a rails 5 episode someday but what i've found is like a lot of what i'm having to change when i'm trying upgrades is stuff that it's cruft that i've learned since like rails 3 that actually i never bought i never got around to learning that there was a better way to do it in rails 4 and now that way the Rails three-way is totally gone or something right. like that. So it's not a big deal. We, we did finally uh, decide that we're just going to leave. I might, be, I might be mistaken on this, but if I, recall, if I recall from the conversations that I think I'm recalling, we did finally decide that we're just not going to get rid of uh, before filter. Hey! <laughs> After I just committed a bunch of code to clearance that's like, if responds to before action, then before action, else before filter. <laughs> eh. I mean, it never hurts to future proof, but well, the idea being, I am, I am like, just for this Rails five upgrade of clearance, I'm just like, I don't care, just get it in there because the very next release is going to be dropping support for Rails three and 
I guess four everything up to four two probably. I'll probably keep four two supported. Yeah. And Ruby one nine and Ruby two O, which just end of life today. So uh I think today, sometime yeah. recently. So that's exciting. I'm very excited to to get that done. Wait, so you're dropping support for Ruby two O? I will be in the next well, not in the next release, but in the next major release, which is going to come immediately after hopefully immediately after, uh whenever Rails five ships. Nice. I, re- I really wish Ruby Gems let you actually express your supported Ruby versions in your gem spec. You can. You can now? Yeah. So I could, I was, I was wondering about this. Like, would you consider that a breaking change if I said, if just in the next point release, I said, this gem doesn't even exist for versions less than 2.1. Is that a breaking change? Because like, you technically, you would be, it would be impossible for you to break your app because you would not be able to install this gem. Right. That's a good, that's a good question. I'm not going to do it at this point. At this point, I'm just going to wait. But it feels like if you just changed... I don't know. Uh. <laughs> have you uh, have you looked at the Rust API evolution policy ever? I don't think so. It's basically uh, right because Semver no- doesn't actually specify what a breaking change is. What a breaking change is, yeah. Um, and so this is basically what we consider a breaking change. And it's interesting because the the rough guideline is we separate things into into major and minor breaking changes, and like minor breaking changes can go in minor releases. And a minor breaking change is basically something that, like, isn't strictly an API change and is something that would otherwise, like, in other languages would probably not be a breaking change. And basically, the better way to put it is anything that the user could forwards compatibly prepare their code for. Um, sure. So things, things like, because technically introducing any function that is any new public item anywhere is a breaking change. Because if they're glob importing your module, there can become a namespace conflict. Yep. But they could forwards compatibly not, or prepare for that by not glob importing. Sure. We'll review that. And then I will also um, look forward to dropping support, probably in a major version bump. I don't know. I guess like the only thing I can think of is like if then there's an actual bug that's discovered, right? So I release 1.13 or whatever the next version is, and I drop support for um, whatever, the old Rubies and maybe some old Rails versions. So they just don't install on those versions. But then an actual bug gets discovered. So I release 1.14, and they want to fix that bug, but they can't even install 1.14, even though it's supposedly like major version compatible. 1.13.1. Right, well, I'd have to go back and apply that, yeah. Yeah. Which is the same thing I would have to do if I wanted to support 1.x users if I bumped to 2L, so. Yeah. Anyway, all right, cool. We should wrap up. Yep. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 54. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bye.